0: and others sitting at tables, exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords, and he drove all of them out of the temple courts, both the sheep and the cattle, everything out of the temple courts. He, he scattered the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their, their tables. <laughs> to those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house some shopping mall, into some market. His disciples remembered that it is written, Psalm 69, verse 9, it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple And in three days, I will raise it again. I'll raise it again in in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days. And now John turns to us, and he says this, But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead... His disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. This is God's word. The story John tells us takes place near the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. It's still early on, just chapter 2. Jesus has gathered his disciples. They've been up in the northern part of Israel by Galilee, and he's just turned the water into wine up uh, at Cana of Galilee, so up in that area, Jesus has been up there. But it's the Passover time. John says when it was almost time for the Passover, when it was that time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus he went up to Jerusalem. So he came down, but you always go up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is in the hills. It was at the time of Passover, and 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 just note that whenever you hear the word Passover or read the word Passover in the New Testament, you got to understand this is a big deal. This is a big deal. For us in our day, it would be similar to to combining several things. On the one hand, it would be similar like to like Easter, right? Our our greatest day of joy and celebration. Jesus Christ rose from the dead, right? We we celebrate that. It's it's a big day for us. Everybody shows up on Easter, right? We celebrate that together. The Passover was like that. Jerusalem swelled with 300, 400,000, 500,000 visitors, all these people. It was busy and, and, and all sorts of activity going on. It was a, a huge religious holiday, but in their case, <laughs> you have to recognize, it was also a political holiday. So it's like, it's like Easter combined with Independence Day, Fourth of July here in the States. Shout out July 1 in Canada. I'm not going to go through everybody else, sorry. But Independence Day, right? You have that time of celebrating that we are free. This is when our nation became a nation, right? And so you have Easter and you have Independence Day, but in the time of Jesus, it was also in an occupied country. And so it's a bit of a powder keg, Right? Things are kind of tense. Uh, there's, there's this Independence Day, but yet the Romans are around. There's this Easter celebration of Passover, but we don't feel like we're set free. And Jesus goes to Jerusalem. John's going to tell us about three Passovers. This is the first. He goes to, the temp, the, the, to Jerusalem, and he goes to the temple, all right? He, he goes there, and he is uh, in a certain area. Let me just kind of show you a bit about this. In, in the temple, and we don't know exactly what it looked like. We know the dimensions of what it would have been like in Jesus' day, but exactly how it was built on this footprint, we're not sure. I think it was probably something like this. And so what we have in the very back of that tall building is the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could go in there only once a year. In front of that is what's called the holy place, okay? That's where uh, the priests could go. In front of that is the court of men. That's where men could go, but no women or children. And then in front of that is the court of the women. Now, surrounding all this is actually the the area, the courts of, of the temple. And it's called the court of the Gentiles because it was there for those who were not Jewish to come and still worship the one true God. It was there for those who who were not Jewish by birth uh, to come and to to experience God's presence. And so that area is where uh, the story is going to take place. That's where everything is going on. Now, it's kind of interesting to get a sense of scale. So if you take a football field, and put it out there. That's the equivalent of 100 yards, 50 yards. Okay, that's a football field. You could easily fit 10. Uh, Estimates are it was probably 20 acres on this one side here. Okay, this is a huge area. It's a huge area, and that's where Jesus was. He comes into the temple, and he sees two things that seem to uh, set him off, so to speak. The first is he sees people selling sheep and and cattle and doves, And, and on the one hand, It's not unusual, there were always animals in the temple, because at that time they did live animal sacrifices. And so the temple was a noisy place. The temple was always, even on its best days, it was a noisy, smelly place, because people would bring live animals. But when you had something like Passover, what you had is so many people coming. And you had people coming from other parts of Israel, and people coming from other countries. And so, if you were going to go offer a sacrifice, what you would do? A lot of people, if you had livestock, you'd sell one at home, take the cash, and go to the temple uh, to Jerusalem and and, and buy one, and and then you could offer that animal for a sacrifice. So, the the selling of these animals was not a problem in and of itself. People could do this in Jerusalem, wherever it was not a problem. In fact, it was a it was a, a good thing to do. Uh, people who didn't raise livestock needed to be able to do this. And so it was not unusual to have some amount of, animal, but, but this, something about this sets Jesus off, okay? The other thing that Jesus sees is, is people exchanging money. And again, it was a necessary service somewhere in Jerusalem, okay? It was a necessary service because everybody, when they came to the temple, had to pay the temple tax annually. It was a half a shekel, and everybody had to pay that, but you couldn't pay it with Roman money. You see, Roman money has a picture of Caesar on it, and that was considered idolatry. You couldn't pay the temple tax with a coin with a picture of Caesar on it. You needed a shekel. And so when you went to Jerusalem, you had to get some money exchanged, right? Right? You had to flip those around so that now you could pay the temple tax. So these things are not evil in and of themselves. The activities themselves are not bad. They, they would have had to been done by God's work law and God's requirements, okay? So that's where it is. Jesus shows up, all right, and, and, and he sees this. And he's upset, and he makes a whip, okay? He wakes a whip, and he just goes off. That's why I say this is so unusual. Scott was, he says, it's a little bit like Mr. Rogers just letting loose on somebody. You'd go, what? This doesn't fit. I mean, this is Jesus and he's got this whip and he is just driving them out. And, 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 and Large animals, cattle, sheep, <laughs> the doves were easier. And, and then the money changers. He, he scatters the coins. He flips over the tables and he says, get these out of here. Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And so for us, we have to ask a question. Why in the world does Jesus do this? What sets him off? What's wrong with this? Why is this? Why does Jesus do this? Why does Jesus drive these people, these animals, out of the, out of the temple? And then what does it have to do with us? Who cares? So that's what I want to think about today. Why Jesus does this, and then what does it Difference does it make to us? Okay? And, and so why does Jesus let's start with the first question? Why does Jesus do this? One of the things that's really helpful to do with this story is, is something in, 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 and I want you to this, I think, help us when reading scripture in general. Okay? So here's something that you that, that's interesting about this story in particular. Because all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in the New Testament, there are four Gospels, four stories of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All four of them tell a story of the cleansing of the temple. And, and, and we have that with other stories as well, right? They'll tell the, uh, obviously, all tell the crucifixion that Jesus died, the resurrection. There are a number of other stories that they share in common. And, and sometimes it's helpful to bring those details together, right? I mean... It, each gives different details. Sometimes you say, okay, I see how this all fits together. But here's the danger with that. Here's the danger with that. Sometimes what we do is we don't say, what is John trying to say? Sometimes we read this story and we say, oh, I know what this is about. And we're actually bringing Matthew and Mark and Luke into it. This is a case where I want to suggest that each of them, Matthew and Luke were the closest. Mark's a little different. John's very different. But each of them has their own emphasis. They don't, they don't contradict each other. They're not, John may have told a different story, because this happens at the beginning, the other's at the end. We're not going to get into that. But but they don't contradict each other, all right? It's not a different kind of, but John wants to make a different point. And and, and so I think it's helpful. When you're reading the Gospels, yeah, you might say, okay, I know that this happened, but listen to what Matthew tells you when you're reading Matthew. Listen to what Mark tells you when you're reading Mark. Listen to what John tells you when you're reading John. Let me show you what I mean as we we look at this story. So why does Jesus drive these animals out? Is it because it was economic exploitation? People are getting ripped off. It seems that one of the things that happened in the temple was not just that people would sell these animals, but they would sell them at crazy high prices. Talk about having a corner on the market. You had the one thing that the worshiper needed. They needed a lamb to sacrifice. You had a pre-approved lamb by the priest. You can charge what you want for that. You could charge what they want for that. If you make a deal with a priest and he's going to say whatever other, pri- whatever other isn't good enough, your lamb isn't good enough, you'd have to go out, you'd have to buy this. And, and, and so it seems that at least some of the people selling this were, were, were just ripping everybody off. They were just a, a capitalism gone wild, so to speak. I mean, they, they just were doing this stuff. And, 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 and Matthew and Mark and Luke all give us a hint that that's the case, right? Look, at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if you'd read the story in their accounts, they all mention that Jesus says that the temple has become a den of robbers, a den of thieves. And, 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 and so it seems like they want us to think a little bit more about, about getting ripped off and about our, our call not to do that. But if you listen carefully, John didn't mention any of this. I don't think that's John's main point. Don wouldn't deny that that's true. But that's not what John tells us this story for. Well, is it that, that people, and especially Gentiles, were, were not able to worship? They were being excluded. Again, this happened in the court of the Gentiles. This happened out in that area. Is that what was going on? Is that what the problem was? Is that it was stopping people from worship, from prayer? Again, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all mention that that the temple was supposed to be a house of prayer. It's a quote from Isaiah 56, verse 7. Jesus says, it's supposed to be a house of prayer, and you've turned it into a den of robbers. And that was, again, Jeremiah 7, I didn't mention it, but you've done that. And, and, And all three of them say, this is supposed to be a house of prayer. This is closer to what John has in mind, but it's still a little different. Now, interesting to note what Mark includes there. Mark says, this is supposed to be a house of prayer, and Mark includes the words, for all nations. And and, and I would suggest that one of the things Mark wants to think about there is racism. Saying, they didn't care about the non-Jews. They didn't care about the people with the same color skin as them. They didn't care about people who were like them. Mark says, you know, this is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, and, and the Gentiles can't worship because of this. But again, John doesn't mention any of this. So we have to kind of let those things go. They're true, but let them go. And ask with me, what does John want us to think about? And again, that's a great thing to do when you're reading Scripture. Don't always just bring in all these other things. See what, because John has something he wants to be confronted with. So what, in John's mind, why does Jesus do this? Why does Jesus drive these animals out? I want to suggest there were two reasons two reasons. The first is kind of the the obvious first one, and then the second one is what John loves to do is to add a second point in and point to the cross. All right. So the first one, and it's kind of related to that one about worship, but it's it's not just that some were excluded. I I think what happened is Jesus comes into the temple, and he looks, and, and what frustrates him is that God's people are not passionate about worship, about meeting with God. It's just a routine. They're just going through the motions. He comes in, and he sees this buying and the selling and this trading of money, and he sees people. It's just sort of a routine. It's, it's just sort of there. If you remember, the John two seventeen, we just read it, but, but his disciples remembered what, when Jesus did this. They remembered that it is written zeal. This is what John quotes from the Old Testament. Zeal for your house will consume me comes from Psalm 69, verse 9 in particular, but 8 and 9 go together. So let's go look at that psalm, because it tells us something about why Jesus is so upset. In, in verse 8 of Psalm 69, it says, I, I'm a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children. His brothers and sisters call him strange. His brothers and sisters are mocking him. People in, in Jerusalem, in Israel, everybody's making fun of him. Why? Why? For zeal for your house consumes me. The insults of those who insult you fall on me. This is a psalmist who is passionate about worship. He's passionate about God's house. He's passionate about being with God, okay? He wasn't passionate about making sure that the temple was just clean and nice and no smelly animals were in it. No, this is a psalmist who was passionate about coming into God's presence, about knowing God, about being forgiven. He was passionate about obeying God. And people, even his own family members, are macking him and making fun of him. It's, it's that passion that's in that psalmist. It's a psalm of lament, ultimately. He's saying, "God, why is this happening?" God, I, I'm so passionate to know you, to be with you, to obey you. I'm so passionate. And all it costs gives me is grief. People make fun of me. Seriously, you think it matters. Seriously. Oh, you go and worship. Oh, you obey all the Ten Commandments. You think it matters. Come on. Yeah, we all do it because that's who we are. That's what we do. But don't don't get all religious on us. Don't get all passionate on us. See, Jesus Jesus doesn't see this passion in in the people of the temple. I, I, I mean, he looks around and people just aren't respecting the holiness of God. They're just kind of doing their thing. It's as if, they're, they're, it, being in the temple for them, I, I think for Jesus, it looked like they were just at Rivertown Mall. Really no difference. It's just another place you go to do your business. This is my business with God. This is where I pay to get him to forgive me. This is where, and it, and it wasn't anything different. They are just doing their own thing. It was all a routine. They had no sense that when we come into worship, and when you open the Bible, God's word, You're coming into the presence of God, of the Holy One, somebody who is beyond anything we can imagine. They didn't respect the holiness of God. They weren't sensing any any sense of their own sinfulness and brokenness. It's kind of like, yeah, we're all okay. It's all fine. No, I mean, the the temple was there so the people could be restored to God's presence, so the people could experience grace, so the people, and and they would come, and and they wouldn't have any sense that, that this was the most amazing thing in the world to be able to come into God's presence, to be able to speak to God, to listen to God, to offer a sacrifice to God. They weren't seeing how much they needed God. I mean, there was just no hunger for God. And ultimately, worship was just a box to be checked. That's, I think, why Jesus just kind of explodes. He looks at it and he says, do you not understand what's happening here? Do you not understand the opportunity you have to come into God's presence, to hear God's word, to experience his grace? Do you not under- How can you come here and just kind of check boxes? How can you do this? And let's just stop there and ask, what about us? How's our passion for God? I, I, I know, it's a tough question, but ask yourself. And, and again, for us, it's not just worship, because again, we, this is not a temple, because God's presence is with you when you open up your Bibles for devotion, so it's, it's individually. But let's just think a little bit uh, about us community. How, if Jesus were to come here today and look at our hearts, what do you say? this is zeal for my father's house? Or is it just kind of like, yeah, we're here? And i got to tell you, it's a lot easier just to be here. It's a lot easier just to kind of go through the motions. I mean, are we aware as we come to God, and whether it's here in worship or whether it's in devoid, are we aware of God's holiness and our own sinfulness and brokenness? Are, 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 do we have a sense of that? Friends, this is God here. This is our father we come into his presence and we can hear his words of grace do we understand how much we need God does zeal for God's presence mark our lives would anybody if they could genuinely see how much I love Jesus would anybody be tempted to say now that's a little overboard that's a little silly that's a little too much What about it? This this passage, Jesus calls us to examine our own hearts when we come into God's presence, when we do that again at home or here or whatever. But but do we have any sense of what's happening? If we stop and think about it, I need need God's presence more than I need air to breathe. I need God's presence more than I need food to eat. I need God's presence. Somehow I've got to remind myself Oh, what happens when I come into God's presence? Somehow i got to say, God, turn on the fire. Give me passion. And so I want you to chew on that some today and this week. Be tough on yourself. How's your passion? Genuinely, how is your passion for God? Would anybody say there's zeal there, or is it just kind of, yeah, I'm here? Now, a couple of things I want you to keep in mind as you do this. I'm going to mention both of them because they're, they're related to each other. As you think about this, try not to focus too much on externals and worry first about yourself. Because as I got through this, I could feel myself starting to go down some roads that were not necessarily very helpful. Because you see, what happens sometimes with a passage like this is something like this. Let's imagine I am one type of person. And I say, oh man, I'm so glad Ron gave it to them. Because I am passionate. That's why every Saturday I start to get ready for the Sabbath. I start to get ready to meet God. I wash my car. And on Sunday I put on my suit and I wear a tie and I sit there in the morning and I'm just, I'm just focusing on God because I know I need to meet him and I'm just getting ready for it and there's no other noise and I come into church and I'm quiet but I gotta tell you those other people who just show up like they walked into the mall I mean they're wearing the stuff they wear and don't they they wouldn't wear that to meet with the president don't tell me you take worship seriously and dress like that and, and, and then we start to say yeah this is what. don't tell me That you can be passionate about God and hand out candy before a service. I'm sorry, it just doesn't fit. It can also be a type of person. This is maybe more of us. We say, look at that person. Look at that church. They just go through routines. Every Saturday, they wash their cars. Every Sunday, they get up and they wear their suit. You know, on the outside, they look really religious, but they have no passion they sit in worship, and you'd think they were dead. You'd think, I mean, you want to see a resurrection. If they stood up and raised their hands, you'd see, I'd feel like it was a resurrection, right? I mean, those people who are all just formed, they're not really there. I come into my dad's house. If the president's my dad, I'm going in like this. And I'm raw, and I'm authentic, and I'm pouring out my heart. That's what God wants. Friends, don't worry about the externals. Guess what? I, I have learned over the last years that some of you look like you are indeed sleeping, but you are passionately listening because afterwards you've told me exactly what I said and maybe a place or two where I should have said it better. And you were caring deeply. So I, I, I've learned, I can't, you know, it, it's not about the externals. Now they help, they make a difference. In, and I want you to say, okay, what do I do so that when I have the opportunity to come in and to worship? My heart is just hungry for it. That I realize, I don't know what that's going to be for you. I don't know what that's always like for me. And I don't know what it always looks like for us together. But we're gracious with each other. And and friends, more than anything else, realize that when we come together, God is always with us, but in a special way, God is here. And I think he would love it if we came. Just so passionate to hear his voice. So passionate to offer up our worship. So passionate to say, he stood in a sinner's place. Oh, can you imagine that? Jesus stood in my place. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. So that's the first one, right? God's people. God's people were not being passionate. I think that's John's. It wasn't the priests. It wasn't the, just the Gentiles who were being excluded. I think John wants to say, everybody's just like checking boxes. So don't do that. The second thing I think John wants us to see, and it picks up with the rest of the story, is that Jesus is doing a prophetic act here, not a prophetic voice. He's making an announcement from God, but he's doing it not with his voice, but with his actions. The announcement he's making is this, that the temple's time is coming to a close, that all that's happening here is one day going to stop. Let's go back to the story. Jesus has just said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a shopping mall. Get out of here. This manages to draw some folks to him. Then the Jews responded, we're told. And it's interesting. I would imagine some of them were probably thankful to Jesus. They didn't like what was going on. But they come and they ask him. We don't know if these people were angry or not. Probably more on the angry side. But they say, hold on. What sign can you give us to show and prove that you have the authority to do all this? How, how do we know this is from God? How do we know that you're speaking from God? Do some sign. The Old Testament said you can tell a prophet by the sign. And, and, and so they said, give us a sign. And Jesus says something that's in a lot of ways strange that they don't understand, that the disciples didn't understand, that if this is all we had you and I wouldn't necessarily understand. But he said, okay, destroy this temple. And in three days, I'll raise it again. <laughs> all right. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. And, 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 and the Jewish leaders and the disciples all go to the same place. And, and the Jewish leaders respond to him, and they say, it's taken 46 years to build the temple. You're going to raise it in three days. Um, he's nuts. Let's just walk away. And, and that's the end of the dialogue, Okay. The disciples don't get it. The Jewish leaders don't get it. And that's all we're told from this story, except for when John comes to us. He wants us to get it, so he's going to help us. He knows we're not all that bright. And, and so he says to us, the temple he had spoken of was his body. When he said, destroy this temple, now raise again, he was talking about his body. The disciples thought about that later. After he was raised from the dead, then the disciples recalled what he had said. <laughs> they went, oh, now I get it. He wasn't talking about the literal. He was talking about himself. He was saying he's the new temple. He was saying he is the place where we meet God. And then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. It was a prophetic act. This temple's time is coming to an end. But even more importantly, Jesus is the new temple. So I said, you got to understand something. This place where we met with God is an amazing thing. And, and understand this. The temple was good. It's not that the temple was evil. It was God's design. And people met God there. Not all the time, but at times. God's presence was there. People met God there. Sacrifices were offered to God. Worship and prayer were offered to God. The temple was not a bad thing. But the temple was never enough. The temple was never enough. You see, the sacrifices had to be offered over and over and over and over and over over again because there was always more sin. And so it had to be repeated over, over, over again. God says we need one sacrifice to end all the other sacrifices. The priesthood was never pure, at least not pure enough. There was corruption in that. And so the temple itself was a good idea, but it was also limited in scope, limited in time, limited in ability. It was never enough. But what John wants you and I to know is that Jesus is enough. Friends, Jesus Christ is enough. When he died on the cross, when he rose again, he was enough. He's the perfect priest. He's perfect as a priest. He can bring us into God's presence. He's perfect as a sacrifice. His blood washes away all your sins. When we put ourselves in Him, when we put ourselves under, it washes away all our sins. And we don't ever, ever need to have another sacrifice made because the sacrifice of Jesus Christ was enough. And He is the perfect temple. When we meet God, we come through Jesus. John wants to know that this place that was intended to be where we meet with God is now Jesus. And and we no longer come into God's presence with the blood of bulls and goats. We come into the presence of God with the blood of Jesus. Hebrews talks about this. Hebrews 7, verse 6 says, Such a high priest truly meets our needs, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, unlike the other high priest's. He does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for our sins once for all when he offered himself. Jesus is enough, friends. You know, it is so amazing to think that we can come into God's presence. You need that. You need that, I need that, more than we need air, more than we need water, more than we need food. We need to come into God's presence. We need to know that God is with us. We need to know that it's okay. We need to know we're forgiven. And we meet with the Father now through Jesus. And part of what that means is, is, is that the place doesn't make it happen. Yes, something happens when we gather together, but it can happen here, and it can happen in the foyer, and it can happen in the gym, and it can happen... But when we gather, it, it's not... It's not the place that makes it happen. And it's not some magic words that make it happen. It's not when we say certain things that, oh, now you got grace. No, what makes it happen is Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And He is the only way to the Father. But He gets us right there. So let's wrap this up. Jesus knows. Nothing is more important than being with the Father. What you need more than anything else, I'll tell you this, you might think, oh no, what I need is a change at work. What I need is more money. No, what you need is to be with God and to know that God is with you, to know that he holds on to you, to know that you're forgiven. Jesus wants that for us. He gave his life so we can be forgiven. He gave his life. So we could be totally accepted just as we are with all of our brokenness, raw and real. We can be accepted just as we are. And we can be with our Father. Friends, that's the gospel. That's the good news. That's the heart of what we believe. That's the heart of why we preach. That's the heart of why we sing. Because Jesus Christ has stood in our place. And what we do in response is we say thank you. We say thank you, Father. Thank you, Spirit. Thank you, Son. Because you stood in a sinner's place. And now we can stand with you. Let's pray together. Father, we need you. We have to confess that sometimes we forget that. The world is full of all sorts of bright and shiny things and we say we need this and we need that and we need this and we need that. Father, at our core, what we need more than anything else is you. Forgive us when we've spent our passion chasing other things. Forgive us for when we've been zealous for silly little things like cars and boats and houses. And give us passion, deep passion for you. Jesus, thank you for being the way to the Father. Thank you for being a temple. Thank you for being here, that right now we are in God's presence. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand and sing a song of response. voices as we sing together to the Lion and the Lamb.